I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Dave Laird. And I'm Chris Pikarski, and you're listening as the world turns. That, that's good. All right. Yeah, that's right. reference. Yes. Nice. Well, welcome everybody to this is episode 15 of the Great Concavity, and we are joined, uh, as you heard, by our friend Chris. So you guys are just hanging out actually together in Matt's living room in Austin right now. So it's kind of like a local recording this time. That's right. This is a first for us where we've got an in-person interview. I'm here <laughs> with uh, Chris Pikarski, as I mentioned. And he is a local to Austin, and he got a PhD from the University of Texas in Austin right. here, and wrote his dissertation on Buddhism and David Foster Wallace. Yes. So I've known Chris for a while. I would say 2010, 2011, somewhere in there. And I've been trying to come over to your house. <laughs> His first it time took, to, to my oh, house. Nice. It, took me, it took me six years, but I was hanging out outside your windows it's, at night. It's kind of a joke because I, I live pretty far north in Austin, so it's a, it's a long trip oh, yeah, a bit of a from central or south Austin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a very spread out town, but Chris and I have, have hung out around campus yep. many times and around several... Ransom uh, Center water, events. Watering holes. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Around town. Uh, Chris also leads a local reading group here on Moby Dick. Oh, cool. So we can, maybe we can talk about Moby Dick later. I have not read Moby Dick to my great literary shame. Uh, well, that's fine. We're, we're, we're actually not going to talk about Moby Dick tonight. Other big books, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Some other big books. So anyways, Chris... Anything else that I left out about your introduction here? Um, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a teacher, Chris? I'm Do you a, teach at a, at a local college or university? I did. Yeah. So cool. my, my path is, was, uh, my education path was, uh, I started to teach for America right after college. Mm-hmm. And then I did uh, grad school at UT. Then I left and taught at a boarding school in Vermont called the Putney School. Oh, yeah. A great little school on top of a hill in beautiful Vermont. Oh, cool. And then I went over to the other side of the country in Washington. Oh, yeah. Where I taught at Whitman College while finishing up the dissertation. And then after that was done, I taught in prison for uh, the state penitentiary for a little bit over over a year. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, some college courses and so I actually taught some Asian philosophy classes there oh cool introduced some of the fellows to to our man um, <laughs> the main man DF Dubs yeah yeah they had they had a little time on their hands and yeah <laughs> did you get them to read Infinite Jest with all with that time I mean I didn't read it with them <laughs> yeah but, but they were some of my best students that I've had yeah, on, on any level hmm. and then I found my way back to Austin by teaching at St. Edwards University, and then I threw in my paper. I, I handed in my papers in January to try to start my own wisdom academy Whoa. called the called the Wisdom Smithy. Cool, that's radical. And you also taught at another college here in Austin. I did. <laughs> oh yeah, St. Edwards. I thought I mentioned. Oh, that. Okay, you did mention that. Yeah. Nice. So I. 
I was really intrigued when I first met Chris but because I felt like there was such a big interest in David Foster Wallace in Buddhism mm-hmm. or even really just religion and spirituality. Yeah. And at the time, there was really not much out there. Mm-hmm. And so Chris was sort of flying blind by trying to analyze this really a whole body of work. Yeah. And his dissertation uh, did a pretty damn good job of attacking a whole bit of literature. Yeah, no kidding. And <clears throat> what, I, what I really like about his dissertation, and I should say, like, his dissertation is available on all the major like dissertation mm. services and stuff. Oh, yeah. I think actually, I think it's even simpler than that. If you Google my name and David Foster Wallace, mm-hmm. I think it shows up as a depository PDF that you oh, can find. Awesome. Well, what's the title of it exactly? It's uh, let me see if I remember. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Buddhist philosophy and the work of David Foster Wallace. Yeah. Okay, and we'll put a link to it on our website yeah, totally. when, when this episode goes out. But in that, what I was really impressed with is that you tackle almost all of his work. Totally. And that, it's huge. And that you go from a lot of people think, oh, well, there, he does a couple things that you know resonate with Buddhism, but I don't think people would think to go to Girl with Curious Hair and Broom the System. You know, Infinite Jets and Pale King have, you know, because they're so huge, yeah. mm-hmm. they have some sort of natural alignment there. But Well, I think, so my dissertation has one huge problem, which is, actually has, <laughs> has multiple huge problems. But let me just start with, with the most obvious. And when you're doing this large overview, mm-hmm. uh, you can't avoid the cherry picking problem. Sure. You know, uh, I was looking through a Buddhist lens, so anytime I saw Buddhist-like things, I'm like, aha. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I knew I was on to something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having but the same experience with my thesis as well. Uh, you know, with, but that's not the smart way to do it, right? I mean, that's not, I, I mean, put, let me rephrase that. That's not the critically complex and analytical way to do it that's just a sort of rough draft i mean all dissertations end up being rough drafts anyway so um well and i didn't mean to imply that you did everything you didn't do every book of his and force this lens on it you were i guess you were uncovering areas of you know resonance that might not occur to casual readers who didn't really have the sort of background in buddhism that you had yeah, exactly. And so what my project ended up, I think, being was a kind of evolution of Wallace as a... My question was really, is can Wallace realistically be considered a Buddhist thinker, whether right, yeah. consciously or subconsciously yeah. or somewhere in between? Yeah. And, and very early on, even with um, Girl with Curious Hair, I discovered that as an undergrad... He his mentor is a leading Buddhist scholar, hmm. and so the implication for me was no matter what, no right. matter. I mean, he was thinking about language and he was th- thinking about linguistics, but yeah. you can't work. Your advisor can't be. You can't have conversations with your advisor in an office who's a main Buddhist scholar mm-hmm. and somehow <laughs> have that not come up. Yeah. Right? So okay. that was just a little bit of detective work that made me so feel. Like, yeah, I'm standing on some kind of ground yeah, to suggest totally. that, yeah. that he was starting off on one end, very concerned with a kind of normal, intellectual, linguistic, smarty pants kind of view. And then mm-hmm. slowly, as Buddhism itself is about, it's kind of dropping some concepts 
mm-hmm. and move a little bit closer to that preconceptual world. Yeah. Which I think that's what I sort of found in Wallace's work. Right. Is yeah. that, is, was that your impetus for doing it? Is that the first time you thought like, okay, this would work or he really was a Buddhist writer? Or what, what was the thing where you first read with him where you're like, oh yeah, this, this guy is a Buddhist writer? <laughs> well, um, that's a complicated question because I read Wallace way before Buddhism entered my life. Hmm. So Buddhism didn't show up until I was about 30 years old. Hmm. And it just so happened that my, one of my graduate school professors is a 45, has studied Buddhism for 45 years and is now an official Dharma heir. Okay. Which is, a, it's a kind yeah, of, it's a kind, we don't have many of those. It's in like, the a, it's like a black belt, right? Like a, yeah. <laughs> Well, and Buddhism in the U.S. is a new thing, really. Yeah, like, totally. You know, it's yeah. like 45, 50 years. Yeah, it's not long at all. Yeah. So you don't have that many people that have the official title. And so, and it so happened that my college, I'm sorry, my grad school professor was one of these. Hmm, cool. Um, and so when I sort of stumbled on Buddhist thought as a 30-year-old, I very conveniently <laughs> was taking a class with a with a Zen Buddhist. Oh yeah. So, huh. but that's already after I had been reading Wallace for, okay, what, for twelve years. Right. Okay. I found him. I found him in, in as a senior in high school. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cool. So I had no conception of any of that. But then backtracking, I was like, wait a second. This Buddhist. Basically, I was. My other scholarly work is on Pynchon. Oh so yeah. So the, cool. the only thing I've officially published, other than Wallace, is Pynchon. Hmm. And that stuff and Wallace's stuff, I was like, there's something about these guys that really resonates mm-hmm. that's similar. That's yeah. it's some something. And then when I went off into my Buddhism studies, I was like, holy shit, this <laughs> like There's a lot of there's a lot of confluence, there's a lot of dialogue here between what Wallace is saying and what what this philosophy says. Pretty much. Yeah. And the brilliant, the fantastic thing I think about exploring it from Wallace's end was that he didn't know it. Hmm. <laughs> it was just kind until, of, yeah. Until later, right? right until, yeah. until later. But, yeah. and in a lot of ways, I mean, that's the most brilliant kind of Buddhist you could be. <laughs> Stumbling into it kind of, like, uh, yeah, unconsciously. He, well, Or just not claiming to be Buddhist. Exactly, right, <laughs> right. because you have to be conscious. <laughs> yeah, you have to be somewhat conscious. Uh, well, he's, he's on a similar path, I would say. Yeah. And then, you know, it just happens to align very closely with a lot of the projects that he's working on aesthetically. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting as you talked about his undergrad years at Amherst, and he is writing this undergrad dissertation or this thesis that becomes Room of the System. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot in there about him sort of thumbing his nose at his father by using this analytical philosophy in Wittgenstein. And there's a lot of Wittgenstein in... Um, room of the system and you sort of latch onto that in your dissertation and was able to like and I don't think people would even connect Wittgenstein with a, a Buddhist philosophy but mm. like can you talk on that for a second yeah absolutely I mean do any if you uh, use the Google machine and type in Wittgenstein and Zen yeah. you're gonna get a lot of hits mm. wow a lot of hits um, and I wasn't trained formally in western philosophy but after discovering Buddhism, there's one go-to guy immediately, hmm. and that is Wittgenstein, oh, yeah. because because 
I mean, it's difficult to whittle down Buddhism to, to simple phrases, but it is, to some large extent, a... Well, there's a famous parable that maybe will seem Wittgenstein to, <laughs> to you, which is, you know, the great uh, Zen master is standing in, in front of the, his uh, lecture hall, and then he says, as soon as I open my mouth, I'm already wrong. <laughs> And that is kind of captures, in a sense, the essence of a particular form of Buddhism, right? Which is it's that kind of like pro- a koan. Sounds like no, not well. I don't know. Koans are meant to sort of destabilize all right. logical mm-hmm. ways of thinking. But I think this guy was saying, this Buddhist master was saying, our world. The the reason we go wrong is because we conceptualize things, and we forget that something that is conceptualized is not the same thing as the thing itself. Hmm. I mean, it's a very, I think, fairly basic concept. Yeah. But Wittgenstein, that's, you know, his limits of what is noble, what is sayable, has to do with conceptual conceptions of language. And right. so there's a lot of really smart papers arguing for Wittgenstein as a Zen Buddhist. Right. And against, you know, like there's a lot of squabbles, like a lot yeah. of... <laughs> well, because Wittgenstein is not one thing. I mean, he's got this earlier philosophy that's yeah. the Tractatus, that's, you know, the world is everything that is the case. And then he's got this way more confounding later philosophy and the philosophical investigations that's way more um, harder to summarize even what, you know, what he's sort of undoing a lot of his old, earlier work. So I think, mm. yes, it's easier to say like, oh, he fits more with a Hegelian tradition. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, some of it does, some of it doesn't. And mm-hmm. that's also, it seems very Buddhist in itself. And it's like, maybe, maybe not. And some of it is, um, you know, it, but it's very yeah, interesting, yeah. this interest in language and this interest in, in you know, what is what are the limits of knowledge? And it does seem very likely that someone yeah. who's interested in that would also, like Wallace, is also interested in these what ends up being like the four noble truths. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, limit limits of language, right? Yeah. Right. That when we talk, we're already somehow <laughs> mistaken. There is error. Yeah. Yeah. Can mm. Can we just like pause for a second? You give us like Buddhism, like one hundred and one. <laughs> what is Zen Buddhism? What is like the four noble truths? Like, I, I feel like I don't want to like assume that I'm even on the same plane as what we're talking about right now. But. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Wallace mentions. Uh, the four noble truths in passing in uh, this is water speech mm. is this is water speech yeah um, you know how I'll answer that question how one of the things I think you first notice about Wallace is that he's really deeply concerned with anguish suffering Suffer, human suffering yeah yeah anguish mm. I mean <laughs> I don't know if someone actually if, if we were to do a <laughs> mathematical percent <laughs> of Wallace's work that of deals Wallace's with suffering. Work, like, very high. Know, very high, right? <laughs> I think you said in your dissertation you have a line that says uh, infinite jest is like an encyclopedia of suffering. Yeah, I actually <laughs> just read that. Yeah. I came across it's that. It's a great line. It's a great line. So, you like know, in the McCaffrey interview, when he says that good fiction is, or good art is, uh, you know, 51% pain and 49% pleasure, his ratio is way, way higher than that, right? right? Like yeah, right. 96% yeah. pain, 4% pleasure, or something. Yeah, so so um, so in a nutshell, Matt, the historical guy, his main Buddha, his name, his concern was trying to find a way out of this box of suffering that we're mm-hmm. born into. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that's kind of that's that the that's like the loss. nutshell. I mean, that's the, that's the nutshell. We suffer, but do we really is have to? Is is there a way out? And it gets incredibly tricky right after that because mm-hmm. then, uh, what do we mean by way out? And that's where people misunderstand what nirvana means. And um, and but the but the actual on the ground theory is uh, nicely stated by by the Buddha. There, there are four basic things that happen that we suffer or actually let me rephrase uh things happen to us here on earth that that uh you could say are stressful no one's exempt from this right because right? we, we've all caught even we, that's the day-to-day trenches of adult yeah. life. <laughs> or as a child like right if you're born you're gonna yeah. you're gonna have a cold pretty, right yeah pretty miserable <laughs> but we, but you don't, right? but we don't need to get nihilistic right away because that's a because that's, that's a, the Matt that's, Booker way right there. You don't know yeah. me very well. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a common yeah. common way that people go wrong with this Buddhist stuff is they very quickly. Uh, it's the same way Nietzsche kind of ultimately went wrong. But you know, you think like suffering is this very loaded word. Mm. The, the basic principle is like thing just like shit happens but it's like a cold you wouldn't think of getting a cold as like suffering right right, right. yeah but nonetheless it is a stress right it is something we would prefer not to have right right and then of course there's the big ones like death (laughs) and uh you know uh but terminal um and then and then the second truth uh is that to the suffering we have reactions right we react a certain way Mm -hmm. And the way we react often causes us a lot of harm. Mm-hmm. The third one is that it doesn't have to be that way. In other words, the way we react, that's what we have a choice about. It's not that we get not to react, but we, we can decide mm-hmm. with enough wisdom, with enough training, with enough uh, awareness yeah. that when I get a cold, I am going to react to it because mm-hmm. you'd be a rock if you didn't, but I don't have to immediately jump off a bridge, right? <laughs> <laughs> I can actually think of it as a movement in time or mm-hmm. something, right? Yeah. And that's the quality that that third noble truth is that we have a choice mm-hmm. and you could become skilled at it. Mm-hmm. And the fourth one is simply that there's actually a legitimate path. There's, <laughs> there's things you could do. Mm-hmm to kind of make your life a little more uh, fulfilling and ultimately free. Mm-hmm. And so the nutshell, I think, I think, I think, mm-hmm. yeah, is that um, there's ultimately, I think the, the, the philosophy is about how we can gain freedom mm-hmm. in this life yeah. that is plagued with a bunch of hard stuff that happens to us. Right. And a big part of uh, getting that kind of freedom is is through s- the eradication of certain desires. Would you say is that? Mm, so that's yeah. I'm glad you said it that way. Uh, cool. <laughs> be, because it's wrong, right? Because it's because, <laughs> because, because it's yeah. Just dismantle that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, I w- it, you used a very strong word, eradication. Hmm. But if you kind of think about it what fun I mean life wouldn't <laughs> I mean that's the that's I think um, much closer to different religion different mm. maybe the Abrahamic religions oh yeah okay um, 
Judeo-Christian. That, yeah, yeah, that you know you could conquer the devil, right? Mm. The Buddhist thing is not about conquer, not about eradicating, but living with, and actually right managing taming. Yeah, maybe yeah. taming is already right. too strong. Okay, um, yeah. n- nurturing, and if so, uh, if you think yeah. of the if yeah. you think of um, the the. Yeah, so so the problem isn't that bad stuff happens, and the problem isn't that we have a response to it. Mm-hmm. Because if we didn't have a response, we'd be we'd be inanimate matter. Right. The problem is that our responses, you could think of them as fire. When you have a response that's just as bad as the bad thing that happened, right? Like so anger. So anger used in a way that is unskillful. So Martin Luther King had a lot of anger, but he did good shit with it. <laughs> but if, but if, but you, if you beat your wife, then yeah, you're like, right. then, causing a new problem. Now, yeah, right? that's more twice as whatever. Yeah, yeah, whatever your wife did. Creating more suffering. Exactly. So yeah. the issue is not about eradication. It's about actually Using it or? meeting it. You know, yeah. acknowledging that this is this is what I am angry now, but if I have enough awareness and if mm-hmm. I have enough uh intention to not be well, I'd say if I have enough intention to be free mm-hmm. so that I'm not controlled by these more um instinctive reactive yeah the default negative yeah, impulse default yeah exactly. totally yeah so yeah. all the stuff you're you're saying chris sounds so much like this is water right like mm-hmm. we're just hearing like shades of that all throughout the kenyan speech um when in in at wallace's funeral when george saunders referred to wallace as uh, a great buddhist american writer was that something at when you heard him say that was that something you've been thinking about a lot already or was that did that kind of turn a light bulb for you or what was kind of the timeline for that comment oh yeah that's where i put a period in my dissertation <laughs> oh yeah nice. <laughs> like, saunders you know, says well and there's another thing i have to bring up that I, at that ceremony i was there and in the row right in front of me was a buddhist monk hmm. and that was an issue for a while and I remember telling Chris this and he was like who was that and I was like I don't know and he was like we we found ourselves in the presence of Karen Green at the ransom center I was like you should ask her mm. and I did you mm. did ask her like who was this Buddhist monk right? yeah. and I unless my memory is completely shot uh, I don't she did not give me a a good answer to I think that. she just told you it was a family friend hmm. is that were you next to me mm-hmm. when I asked I was that? there I was right there and, okay and she just said it was a family friend hmm. yeah but it was very interesting that you know Saunders said that because his whole eulogy was very uh, poignant mm-hmm. and he you know the part that stuck with me was not that line it was at the very beginning where he says he was the first among us and mm-hmm. you know Saunders is on the stage with Don DeLillo and yeah. Zadie Smith and Franz and, and he says was, Wallace was the first among us and he thinks he was a great Buddhist writer so it was a yeah. very insightful piece but then to say that really in the presence of like a Buddhist monk it really added some weight to his <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like alright George back it up man like. so then after the fact I gotta say yeah. on, it was through our email list and Wallace L that there's a guy on there named Christopher Hanneker who then came out after that in 2008 and said, oh yeah, I had corresponded with Wallace about 
meditation. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, I didn't know about this. And there was a lot of things that came out after his death that mm -hmm. we didn't know yeah. while he was writing and publishing that he was actively sort of seeking out this guidance about mm. meditation. Mm. Yeah, and so then I corresponded with Christopher via uh, email and then in letter, Yeah, I mean in, in writing. And so I had access, Christopher very kindly sent me uh, photocopies of all their correspondence oh, cool. having to do with their meditation questions yeah. that Wallace had. Nice. So, so a, a dissertation, you know, like the one I wrote, it's not about, we were laughing at it earlier, it's not about proving the point, <laughs> but it, it was very convenient that the <laughs> suspicion I had mm -hmm. actually ended up being biographically sound. sound. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, even if it wasn't, it wouldn't have mattered because yeah, exactly. we still have the art. But, yeah. but you know, um, it, it, I mean, by the time Pell came, I mean, some of that stuff is so explicit that it'd yeah, be true. odd. It'd be odd for that to <laughs> not have been the case. Well, but. and you make an interesting point in there about the Pell King is like, you're saying, well, it's not explicitly a Buddhist text, but what would such a thing even look like? Like, <laughs> like what would it even look like if he was like, and now I'm going to write about Buddhism? Like, right. Yeah, that's <laughs> even like... That's not even a Buddhist thing to say. Right. It's not even, yeah. uh, it doesn't even fit with the philosophy to be explicit yeah. about it. The form way. and it's content like, do not match. It's like better to even approach through these parables or through these stories or through these examples. But the boredom yeah. thing, I mean, we got to talk about that because to oh. me that was... <laughs> am, I, am I such a bad guest? No, no. <laughs> yes, yeah, speaking boredom, of boredom, boredom Chris. Me, no, 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 no. The, Pale King version of boredom, um, because I immediately thought there was something religious even about attacking that idea, mm -hmm. and that to me something that's boring or boring or full of boredom has no meaning. If you're doing a rote task and it's really boring, that's meaningless, and you can sort of zone out and forget about mm -hmm. it. But then for someone to tell you, oh, there's meaning not in doing the task itself but being in that state mm -hmm. to me that was probably to me that was like the most explicitly buddhist thing he had written mm -hmm. and the fact that he didn't get to publish it in his lifetime i mean kind of means he didn't get to grapple with that publicly right it was posthumous yeah. rather you know we're sort of grappling it with him not being here to defend himself right against yeah. this yeah. and <laughs> me saying like oh you wrote this great buddhist novel but to me mm -hmm. I had never seen it approached that way, at least by another American fiction writer. So yeah, there's a there's a real catch with the Buddhist stuff, which is that it's not it can't be merely intellectual, and that is very that that's a tremendously difficult thing to really accept and understand. That you could read a billion Buddhist tomes, you could be a Buddhist scholar, you can know all these theories, but your cells, your cellular uh, neurology path pathways do not get changed by reading books. Right. Yeah. They get changed by physical activity. This is, by the way, the Zen Buddhist in me speaking. Other forms of Buddhism don't place as much weight on meditation mm -hmm. as what I'm familiar with. Yeah. But the act of meditation is a physical. It's actually a yoga posture. Mm. Your body actually hurts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and to your point, Matt, when you meditate the way 
I've been trained and the way I'm, I imagine Wallace was starting to dabble in because he was talking to Christopher, who's also Zen Buddhist. Right. You are asked to sit in front of a wall that is blank and keep your eyes open mm-hmm. for usually about half an hour. So once you get over the fact that there aren't gigantic fire ants crawling over you, <laughs> right? Then if you actually think what's happening in that situation is you're looking at something that's inanimate, and yet the most fascinating things show up. Seems very <laughs> I mean, you'll have people, especially people that do long Zen retreats, you have unicorns starting to show up and... You know that wall all of a sudden yeah <laughs> of all kinds of things but that's that's all of which is to say that boredom is um doesn't really exist it's our projection onto a certain hmm. it's our it's our worldview right that creates whatever we want to see hmm. Interesting. and i'm very interested in this idea that there's multiple forms of meditation too and that there are states that you can get into wall seems very focused on that with tennis with other things where you get into this sort of state of flow where you sort of forget Mm -hmm. your body Mm -hmm. and it's almost like an active form of meditation where you're doing something active Mm -hmm. and you know you read these stories of monks who are gardening or you know brewing beer or doing something that's very repetitive but yet they're silent Mm-hmm. And that their minds are somewhere else than what they're. Even mm-hmm. if they're not sitting in front of a wall, they're being uh, in that state mentally. And I think Walls, you know, clearly we know he was interested in that sort of flow state. And he, you know, the tax examiners get into that. And you yeah. think, how can that even be <laughs> anything but excruciating pain? Right. Yeah. And that's what you think about, like sitting. Like, how can that not be? Yeah. Extremely painful Just all day. To wiggling sit all day. At a retreat. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say two things about that. That there's, I want to say there's a positive way of thinking of it and a kind of, and one that's uh, slightly, I think, misunderstands the enterprise. So, so from the way I see it, which is also very limited and mostly <laughs> limited to, for the most part, one tradition, which is Zen, and that's way different from what the P- Tibetans do, and right. it's different from what the Theravadans do in Southeast Asia and so forth. Mm. But um, the the negative, my negative reply, and I think where Wallace was still, this spoke to me that he wasn't quite an experienced meditator, is because that's a kind of cartoonish version of what meditation is. Mm. I mean, he mocks himself by having... <laughs> Drinian, yeah, flow, flow, levitating, like wild, kind of, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Um, But that I think that still there is a notion that when you do that stuff, you're escaping and you're transcending. Mm. All of Buddha's teachings really were: there is no transcending. There is no. He refused to answer metaphysical questions. He was a deep, deep pragmatist. Mm -hmm. Like life is hard. How do we? live fully in spite of that right and not escape from it in other words it's almost the opposite of heaven and hell it's like right here is what we have so so the whole levitation and transcending into higher states Mm. is a kind of i would say it's a little closer to a pop culture version of meditation Mm. roughly but that said the flip side the positive way of thinking about it is that flow state which isn't i don't 
I wouldn't think of it as transcending or like being otherworldly. It would be that you're doing something so thoroughly, right? You're that that in Suzuki Roshi's words, the whole point of Zen Buddhism is to do something so thoroughly that you burn the you know you burn yourself to ash, that mm. you don't leave any trace left over outside yourself, which in this case is usually thoughts about. Did I do a good job? What could I have done better? Right. Mm. If you do something thoroughly, burn yourself down. That is that that kind of I think um, meditation as flow. That is not otherworldly. Mm. That Wallace tapped into also mm. when he wasn't doing the pop culture thing. And my my you know I have a couple of ideas on that because one I think Wallace really achieved that personally through writing. And for him, he says that several times yeah. that that's what he loved about writing is that he could forget about himself and just do it for hours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that there's also a, a quote that I love from Gary Snyder, and I'm going to butcher it, but he says something like, the only transcendence you find at the top of the mountain is that what you bring up there with you. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of that too in that this cartoonish idea there's a there's a several like woody allen movies about like a guy who is looking for enlightenment and he tries all these different religions like i'll try meditating and i'll try catholicism yeah. and i'm gonna try this yeah. and it's like oh the revelation is it was within me the whole time to right. begin with and this is you know wallace sort of parodies that a little bit in good old neon and even with fogel and like there, there are other characters that they try certain things to get enlightenment but it's it's a joke right because you're not going to find enlightenment and some other place but beyond your own ideas and that's brilliant man no oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that from a zen buddhist yeah. master and also it actually points you to the next step that i think uh is another sort of pop corrective to mm -hmm. I like offering pop culture correctives <laughs> to what Zen is because it's been so... Yeah, uh, misrepresented. Or, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess my little role in this world is to try to, you know... <laughs> right some wrongs. Or, or offer, offer an alternative way of seeing it. Yeah. Um, it's very polite. And it's not that enlightenment... So that's as, as materialist in our culture, mm -hmm. we like to think of owning things right or having things right you gain or attain enlightenment is a common phrase mm. your quote points that you can't actually get it externally right it, that it's internal but there's one step after that which is that enlightenment is not something you could ever gain either externally or internally and yet people seek it constantly and yet people seek it constantly so that's where they get wrong and mm. caught up but there is in fact such a thing as enlightened action and this is what you were talking about with that Wallace found in writing. He himself, uh, uh, you could argue from a Zen perspective, never attained enlightenment. But in part because you can't. There, there is no... <laughs> Fair enough. There, there is no I'm such done. thing, right? There, yeah, there is no <laughs> such thing. pleasure then. <laughs> right? But what you can experience is, uh, is activity that is so thoroughly itself... Mm -hmm without any hindrance right you're just a natural man in that phrase right. as you're doing the thing that you're doing you it just goes right and in that state that is enlightened activity and, and so people the, would say that's probably also happiness 
or or your life's purpose like to me yeah. that I'm very interested in that with Wallace's work like what is what is the purpose of life then like what is you know what is it that we're really seeking is it that enlightenment and transcendence and you know there's a quote in an essay that I have to plug that I love I, I brought it up on Twitter this week and it's called David Foster Wallace and the Velveteen Rabbit and if you haven't read this essay, it's a fantastic piece of criticism because the Velveteen Rabbit is not real. If you read the story, it knows it's not real, but more than anything, it wants to be like authentic. Mm-hmm. It wants to be itself. Yep. And that's sort of the the question that you know pervades all of Wallace's work. And that there's this question for like, how can I be real, mm-hmm. or how can I be my real self? Mm-hmm. And in a way, I think that it's there's never really any salvation. Like there's never really any transcendence, except for these little flashes where you get things where he says about boredom, where he says, "If if you find this state, it will wash over you in waves of you know the sheerest like joy and happiness." Yeah, and in the and in Buddhist language, you often hear the phrase "letting go," so it's almost the opposite. Right. You don't attain this state Mm. it's an actually question of the reason you're not yourself is not because you're never not yourself the universe is always itself right like (laughs) it can't help but it's that we have these concepts of who we think we are Mm. and through no fault of our own of our own really like you know when we're young babies our parents dress us in blue or pink right right depending and somehow we associate with ourselves, say, as blue or pink. Mm-hmm. And when you're that young, that stuff becomes hardwired into your <laughs> circuitry or your, as Wallace would say, right? Your, your <laughs> motherboard. <laughs> motherboard at birth. And so the whole process, and you could see it exactly in Wallace's writing in a sense, for how he started with very pyrotechnic. Yeah. fancy stuff right. and how his language moves more and more over time to simpler and simpler constructions mm-hmm. and sentences that say what they mean and you know dropping some of that pomos to some extent I mean, yeah. he still uses pomos <laughs> stuff interestingly but yeah oh that that brings Author me back here. to the Velveteen Rabbit and that I was gonna say in there it quotes a Zadie Smith line I don't remember from where but that if there is an answer that he comes back to a lot it's that about letting go of the self Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the escape from solipsism and getting outside of your own head. And the, if there is a way out, that's his, the, the piece of it that he comes back to a lot is how do you escape, you know, narcissism and solipsism right. and yeah. getting outside of your own head. And that's a lot of what This Is Water is about, right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. is the, that's his basic core philosophy, which does seem to be in line with what you're saying from... Buddhism. Yeah, mm-hmm. though Christopher Hamaker, I thought, in uh, had a great critique of This Is Water that I, I want to acknowledge on this podcast because he's also a very dedicated Zen student and he caught on to um, the fact that so let, let me just let me just preface this by saying I, I have I have uh, I ended all of my collegiate classes that I taught every single time by reading This Is Water. It didn't matter what class I was teaching. That just seemed like, in college, if you take my class, you're going to read Consider the Lobster, (laughs) This Is Water, and I don't care what I'm teaching. So is this the end of every class session or like the end of every term? (laughs) At the the end of the year. 
Um, All right, guys, we've got 45 minutes, 15 minutes of it. It's going to be muting the speech right. every day. You're going to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I have a pretty hardcore critique of it myself later. But <laughs> but the Zen critique is that is that um, this goes back to escaping yourself. And remember, the Zen project is not one of escape. It's mm. actually leaning into. Mm. You can't escape who you are, but you can, if you have enough courage, I suppose, you could take the most awful things about yourself or things you think are awful and kind of lean into them, mm. turn toward those things as opposed to away. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, then you realize that you're fine exactly the way you are. And yet, if these behaviors are causing you trouble, then you could then uh, begin noticing that and start acting differently. But it's always actually leaning into it. And the critique of This Is Water is that Instead of having pessimistic glasses, Wallace is arguing for a kind of optimistic glasses, right? Maybe the guy in the SUV is driving his uh, child to the hospital, to the hospital, right? Room, yeah. But so that's rose-colored glasses. But mm. it could be that the guy is in fact just an asshole in an <laughs> SUV. But you could still see that as you know. You can't hate that guy. You. you that even though that guy is doing something harmful, yeah. if you lean into it, you can actually be sympathetic, it even, then. sympathetic even then and just notice that that's the current situation. Yeah. Um, and You're it doesn't change it. Right. It doesn't have to be happy in mm -hmm. order to. And that's the trickier thing to understand some of this because there's a lot of people trying to find their better selves mm -hmm. by. I mean, that's why a lot of people go to monasteries and mm -hmm. I mean, it's a kind of escapist route is denying life as it is instead of saying life as it is is difficult. What would happen if I truly accepted it, mm. truly understood what that would mean for me, except that I get angry when people cut me off in traffic. <laughs> right. And, well, and, then, and accepting that you might not be able to even control your anger at that. Mm -hmm. And to ex doing radical self love, you know, yeah. he has this thing in the Lipsky book about you know treating yourself the way you would treat an infant, in this like very <laughs> caring, yeah. loving way. And you know, Zadie Smith has kind of a reductionist way of coming back to this with love as being you know like sort of like God is love. Mm -hmm. That that does apply to ourselves, and that there's clear evidence like even in this stuff Wallace wrote, there's a lot of trouble with self love. Yeah, yeah, and that yeah. really accept. He's very hard on himself, and I think we're, as modern people, very hard on ourselves to say we should be responding perfectly in every situation. We should be finding this enlightenment and transcendence, and we should be. And, yeah. and what appeals to me about this, this Buddhist way is really that you could be an amateur and just be like, I don't really know what I'm doing here. I'm really struggling. <laughs> well, not only that, actually, that's the classic Buddhist text. Really, if you're going to read one, that's the one. Say the name of Zen it. Zen mind, beginner's mind. And that's essentially that if you really want to be a Zen master, <laughs> the more childlike yeah. you can be, and honestly, and nice. he's not, I mean, he's not exaggerating. He's not bullshitting. No, no, that, that the more you can truly not know as you live your day-to-day -day life, the more life will be that's your true nature, genuine, and yeah. it's it's that. What, the, the second half of the quote is the famous quote is in the uh, expert's mind, the possibilities are few, hmm. 
in the beginner's mind, they're endless. Oh, yeah. And actually, I flipped that quote Inter- around. That oh, yeah. Is the same. same point. Yeah. That's interesting because um, even in, like, uh, Judeo-Christian religions, that concept is very present as well, right? That, you know, like, from the mouth of babes comes yeah. wis- wisdom and truth. And, and I don't feel like it's very prominent, though. I feel hmm. like there is a little bit of it, but I feel like there is... You know, it maybe it manifests itself in different ways, and it mm. manifests itself sometimes as in like an anti-intellectualism. Mm-hmm. But I think one thing you picked up on in your dissertation and really expanded on is Wallace's treatment of Mario and Candenza. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. In Infinite Jest, and to me, that's really the most sort of innocent, naive, like childlike way mm-hmm. that that is explicitly connected to like enlightenment and grotesque. Yeah, very grotesque. Yeah. And so that's that's the great that's the great irony, yeah. or not irony, but I think that's what makes it from my framework, my viewpoint, mm-hmm. kind of Buddhist. That he's not wishing to be better; he's completely at ease in right. his own deformity, yeah. And can just, I mean, we there's similar analogs in all mm-hmm. I think world traditions, and, yeah, yeah, for and sure, lepers and yeah. so forth, yeah. And, but. Uh, but that's, I think, often where people go wrong in the Buddhist way is that you, mm-hmm. you want some sort of purity, you want some kind of like holy presence, but mm-hmm. in, in fact, it's the opposite. Yeah. 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 If Mario is just, the only question is to what extent is Mario kind of really conscious <laughs> of his own to the extent that he's right. deformed. And I can't quite remember at I this point. I think he is. I think he's aware that he's different. Yeah, I got that impression. Um, it's interesting, Chris, that you that I haven't for some reason I never came across your dissertation until Matt recently sent it to me when we were gearing up for this podcast, and I'm currently you know writing a whole chapter about Mario as well from a like a Christianity spirituality perspective and talking about uh, Mario's uniqueness in that in that spiritual context. And so I was so I, I just read your table of contents today, and then I just went straight to the Mario chapter and I just started going through it. And some of the stuff you're saying is is just like very similar to what I'm saying, but it, in, in a sort of a different context or different tradition. So I'm really excited to, to read, to give it a full read and, uh, and bounce some ideas. Yeah, I'd love to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I do remember that Mario, there's a lot of uh, parallels with the disgust, mm-hmm. that Mario is disgusting. There are a lot of Wallace really goes nuts. <laughs> the dis- but, Over the top, yeah, that yeah, cartoonish. Yeah. You know. totally. yeah, but I, but I think he was really sincere. The the end point is that, is that there's a real sincerity to, yeah, being yourself, yeah, being authentic. And, and you, yeah, and you say that Mario is is like sort of the the pinnacle of spirituality in Infinite Jest. He's like the embodiment of um, spirituality. Or s- Did I say that? Um, <laughs> I, I can't remember. The, I can't remember. The exact, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Can't well, to me, there's, there's a good parallel there but with um, with the addicts, right? So that there are these really disgusting people and habits that happen down yeah. the halfway house that make it seem like you would not want to be around them. Right. You would not want to live there. And, I, you know, I'm really affected by that idea that, you know, the the best among us or the most, you know, sincere among us would have to sort of bring yourself to that level and say, would you go and live in a halfway house and take someone who is basically an unknown, mm-hmm. deformed person who is not a college graduate, and are you going to value them 
Are you right. going to care about their story and their life at all? How easy is it to walk away from them? And you know that story with Mario and Barry Loach mm-hmm. is that you know, no one would touch him. And mm-hmm. that when right. you see a homeless person, what is your instinct? Is your instinct really to approach them and right. say, "I'm no. just going to offer you a good word today"? And like, no, yeah. your, your <laughs> yeah. instinct human is to, and is to yeah. turn away. I mean, it's it's almost the most pure thing you can do is sort of turn towards this disgust. Absolutely, mm-hmm. turn towards it. The question that I have, and that, that's why I wondered whether I said, David, that I, I thought Mario was the epitome of spirituality. Yeah, I have the quote, actually. It's on one. <laughs> one oh, oh, man. Oh, oh, it oh, can't take it back now. You oh, no. So, so <laughs> can I, I'll read uh, it. It says, without outright claiming with certainty what that force is, it seems like Mario comes closest to being an embodiment of spirituality. So, yeah, uh, now I'd like to put an asterisk <laughs> in the revival. <laughs> you know, writing is never done, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, totally. <laughs> uh, and because that, just saying it, just reading that makes me think. Um, because Mario is a kind of idiot. I think a literal, I don't know if we looked up the word right, idiot yeah, literally. Yeah. I think yeah. there is a kind of... Um, and that would make it seem like spirituality is naive. Hmm. And I don't think, at least at least from my understanding now, I don't think that what you're hoping to gain is a kind of one way of... You know, Mario can't help but look at things mm-hmm. <laughs> innocently. Yeah. And I don't think that's how I understand spirituality. Mm. I think it's close to what Matt is, I think, poking at, mm. which is you approach the filthy person on the street knowing better knowing that they might get you sick and that it's uncomfortable and you don't really want to exactly yeah 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 so and and that's wallace that you know he found himself he you know i think this is why his biography is almost inseparable from his work for me and that Mm. it keeps coming back up because it fits so neatly with this you know what he wrote about was his life essentially and that he grew up in a you know suburban white middle class mm-hmm. upbringing, and yet finds himself in a Boston halfway house, mm-hmm. surrounded by some pretty hardcore addicts and thieves who have been sentenced there by the court. And it would be very easy for him to turn away from them and just make fun of them and say, "I'm above you guys. I got into Harvard. Uh, I don't need to deal with any of you." Yeah. But from all accounts, that's not what he did, and that mm-hmm. he you know did turn a lot of them into material for his writing. But I think that he did it out of a sincerity, a a true connection. And I mean, to me, just the fact that he, it's not like he's the first person to write about disgusting, weird people, but like not even, not even that he was the first one to do it, but it's the one that we're here talking about today because there's something that resonates, Mm. you know, throughout all of his work about maybe there is no way out except for this idea of getting away from yourself. You know, saying I'm, it would be easy for me and comfortable for me to just do what pleases myself or to do what is, uh, you know, the most comforting thing for me is to say, screw everyone else. <laughs> and that, that's, that's easy. In right? what that's sense, very Matt? comfortable. <laughs> well, and I, I think that's, that's the big question, right? Like, and maybe it's too reductive to say it comes back to 
the stuff that he's talking about in This Is Water or talking about in Love about just kind of getting off of your default setting of saying, you know, don't look for opportunities for turning away from uncomfortable things. I mean, this is really generic. It's hard to talk about. I've I ran into so much trouble writing this <laughs> thesis because because of that that bind of inexpressible truths that you have to just experience instead of talk about it. And of course, right. it's doubly as hard when well it, it, when when you have to write about the things. Writing itself is a conceptual game, and if what you're trying to do is move through your concepts to see your concepts clearly. Mm-hmm then the actual activity of writing can put you right back into the problem even even harder hmm. possibly you yeah. have to have a, a whole lot of awareness so as, but the but a, another great irony is that for all these zen masters that talk about silence that talk about just sitting just being just accepting things as they are zen has thousands and thousands of tomes that were written <laughs> right. Right. right so that is a paradox that you, people need to get comfortable with sure there's no way yeah. out of it yeah and, and we i mean you even alluded to it matt earlier as wallace was writing infinite jest he was in the zone and yet if you think about the letters he wrote to delillo yeah. the anxiety about having written he was riddled with it yeah. and so you could see that that he he was far from an enlightened person. <laughs> well, and it's it's a double bind. You know, he's very obsessed with these sort of loops and these binds that mm-hmm. you get caught in. Where yeah. you know the the more that you worry about it, about like maybe I'm not stressed enough, and it's like, well, no, maybe I'm too stressed, and then you're creating stress yeah. by even worrying and yeah. thinking. It's like, well, how do you even stop thinking? Yeah. Why am I obsessed with stopping thinking? And like any sort of these loops that you can think mm-hmm. yourself into yeah. a box is very hard to escape but now I want to go back to a little bit on something we were talking about how um, some things about Wallace's biography came out after he died and it sort of reframed the way that we thought at least for me it reframed a lot of the way that we thought about his work and depression and addiction and recovery and suicide and all of these issues really came to the forefront after he died and there, there's an episode mentioned in his biography and you mentioned it too where in 2001 he went to a, like a kind of like a Buddhist retreat in France with Thich Nhat Hanh how do you say it? Yep. Thich Nhat Hanh something like that Plum and Village I think it was called there you go and he didn't last very long he stayed for a week or two <laughs> and then kind of bailed and came home oh yeah I wanted to ask you guys actually about that because uh I I tried to stay interestingly I tried I didn't dig very deep about that and you guys know more about Wallace than I do well but, Matt Matt's the the no, keeper of biographical knowledge on Wallace no I, I don't want don't put that on me <laughs> but I, I don't so first of all I'm pretty sure he he was there a very short time and I don't know if it was as long as you mentioned I'd be curious to find out how long he actually stayed mm. I thought it was actually for some reason, I thought it was actually only a couple of hours. I don't think it was even a day. He complained about the food, so you got to think he at least had one meal. So, right. And that was in a... It, correct me if I'm wrong. That was in a postcard to DeLillo, right? Right. Oh, yeah. And so I've been thinking about that a bit, or now I am. He, I'm, I'm, he had to have been 
interested uh, in it. Well, in, in, but he was, I think, laughing at himself, right? Or, mm. in other words, I'm guessing the food not being good is not the issue, right? right? That, that was not <laughs> right? the issue, <actual laughs> right? Uh, uh, Probably fair it, to say. The he Vietnamese it in a way, right? It didn't, you know, it wasn't what he thought it would be. Yeah. I'm, I wonder. Yeah. I, I, I wonder he, because... I mean, he never talked about it. So in 2005, what I, what I found interesting is that in 2005, he goes to the Lobster Festival. Or maybe it's 2004. He goes to the Lobster Festival and says something about how he hates traveling, he hates tourism. Mm. And he says something in there, too, about how he had never really traveled overseas which we know he had because he had mm-hmm. been to France in 2001, but he never talked about oh, that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in 2005 is whenever he starts writing Christopher Hamaker, asking some really basic questions about meditation mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sitting. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like he didn't, he was starting over or he had mm-hmm. never really mm-hmm. got it. Yeah. Or his interest was really surface level until later. I mean, I don't know what your take is on that, but it, it seems weird to me that there was like two phases. So yeah, so I think this is what I mean by the the whole Buddhist stuff. It, it, it's nice that this takes us right back to what I was saying. Intellectually, Wallace, I think, over the years was developing the he was expanding his circuitry. I mean, he was um, <laughs> he was subconsciously thinking about these things. But you could th- think about these things as much as you want. The moment you step into a monastery where you're asked to sit mm-hmm. in, in silence for a couple of hours, you're going to go fucking nuts. Right? <laughs> you can't hack it. You just can't because you are so uh, shocked at what your mind does when right. it's left to, to itself. No smoking, no coffee. None of that. For Wallace, that right. must have been like actual <laughs> hell, right? Yeah. So blame the food. No Kodiak right. plugs. And yet, that doesn't... I don't think that... Uh, counters what I was saying that over the years as a, since he was a young writer he was slowly like downloading all this info mm. physically his body was not changing his mind's pathways weren't really changing therefore we could posit he enters the monastery runs screaming but then that taste that little glimpse right. he shifts something and then he actually starts inquiring about mm. the physicality of it, meaning the, the realness of it, the, right. right? Because yeah. he knew that he wasn't going to outthink his, that's the whole point, right? He wasn't going to think his way out of that one. Right. Huh. And then he starts actually meditating or asking oh, yeah. questions about yeah. meditation. Yeah. And that's the only answer, the, the one answer I remember Karen mm. giving me oh, is yeah. that she remembers him sitting in the bathroom at odd hours of the night. Hmm. I, meditating I think that's right. that, that we're trying to yeah huh. and that and, I mean in that at that point that that has become a real sincere shift yeah n- knowing the difference from 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 the intellectual to the actual embodied right. thing the biology of it almost and that I, I just have to add this when I think about the entire Wallace story as as lucky as we are to have had him the tragedy for me, from my perspective, the great tragedy is that if not that meditation solves problems, it really doesn't. It just kind of opens you to acceptance, hmm. and then you can kind of just be who you are more. 
and that tends to more fully human in a way yeah, yeah. Um, but that it seemed to me that Wallace was so close so close to actually you know he was now living was late in his life when he really got into it yeah mm-hmm. I mean as most people do I mean when you go to a Zen center it's mostly older people it's not 18 mm-hmm. year olds <laughs> it's not, not. <laughs> unless, unless it's cultural right, right, right. if right. it's right. Yeah. we have shit for culture I mean we have <laughs> but actually we, we have an adolescent culture right, right. we we, yeah. were, we we celebrate Spring one break all the time. perpetual childhood. Yeah. yeah, whereas in different cultures, right, they actually teach thirteen-year-olds how to sit yeah. quietly. Yeah. They fall asleep and they whatever, but at <laughs> least it's getting ingrained in them. Yeah. Um, so for me, that's the tragedy that mm. that he was already. Yeah. He he got pretty serious about it, and you could see it in in the Pale King. Yeah. There was a calmness. There was a real, I think. Uh, genuine curiosity about what is this stuff mm-hmm. still maybe a little bit facile in, in certain ways right. but sincere yeah huh. and and uh, and then you know the tragedy happens so yeah. well that sounds that sounds quite a bit like a final thought would you say Chris I would I, <laughs> is would, that, I, is that I have of... no more <laughs> <laughs> thanks for I was like I have no yeah. more of those <laughs> No, I, I think that, that a lot, you know, we've been talking a lot about Infinite Jest and not necessarily the Pale King. And in yeah, Infinite sure. Jest, a lot of his obsession is really on uh, addiction and recovery. And mm-hmm. that's a different framework that I think it is very simplistic, but it is also like sort of anti-dogmatic and that it doesn't really teach uh, a path to salvation per se, right? It has a very specific aim, a very limited aim, and that's why I brought up this sort of Woody Allen character, you know, who's looking for enlightenment. It's like, I'll try, you know, these new yeah. religious movements, and I'll try meditating, and I'll try going into some water pie, and I'll go, yeah. like, you know, join yeah. this, uh, this other club, and yeah. that's sort of not, you know, life is always more complicated than that, but that mm-hmm. does sort of sum up what you're saying with Wallace and that he late in life gets down to brass tacks and it's like yeah. nice I'm pun. going to actually do something here and I think that yeah and I think the beauty no for me tax uh, for the next yeah. <laughs> uh, of all this Buddhist stuff is that really at the end of going back to the nutshell is you have everything you need there's nothing missing that's one of the linchpins there's mm-hmm. nothing missing you don't need to go to foreign places. All you really have mm. to have is enough courage to actually just sit down for a little bit mm. and and let all those crazy voices in your head actually actually talk to you. You mm. actually have a conversation <laughs> where you're interested in them rather than trying to stuff them in the closet. Right. Yeah. And and that and that is a pretty simple thing to do mm-hmm. in in theory. Yeah. Mm. Cool. It's awesome that you brought up uh, Christian monasticism because on the next episode of the Great Concavity, and we've never, pit, we've never looked ahead before, Matt, have we? But we're going to be bringing on a Cistercian uh, monk from Austria. Mm. Is going to be our guest, uh, Father Edmund Waldstein. So I think back-to-back episodes. These are going to be so fascinating. You know, hearing hearing uh, these two uh, great traditions converse with each other. I can't wait for that, fellas. Yeah, I think it's uh, going to be cool. <laughs> and thank you so much for, for doing these. You guys, uh, I just have to say, you guys are doing such wonderful work and oh, bringing thanks, all man. these wonderful voices, talking about our man. Uh, what a treasure trove of, of delight. Yeah, it's been it's been amazing what our guests have brought to the table and, and just seeing, you know, the diversity and, and the different 
disciplines and perspectives that people have brought to the table, uh, whether it's art or whether it's scholarship or or poetry, whatever. Like it's just been such a crazy and cool spectrum, and I feel like we're just barely starting to scratch the surface, you know, with the possible directions that we can go with people to talk to. So I it's pretty exciting. We, we would just be doing this stuff anyways. We might as well record it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So for sure. Dave, I'm going to say, do you have any um, announcements you want to make about the Infinite Winter project that just finished and wrapped up? Yeah, yeah, I'll say a a thing about that. So um, if you've been following Infinite Winter at all, uh, we had our final uh, chapter post last week, and then this week we had our final thought post. And um, uh, Mark and I today, Flanagan, were emailing and just talking about how weird it is that we don't have infinite just to read this week and to be thinking about what to write and similarly i can't just go on infinite winter and see what the latest post is this morning because it's done so it, it feels like this really kind of uh it's it's a bit empty feeling that it's over uh it was, it was such a fun and re- rewarding thing to be a part of and so i just want to thank uh, mark flanagan so much for putting it on and for uh spearheading it and and to all the other guides who have contributed so faithfully every week uh, it's been awesome to hear uh, Corey and to hear um, Nathan and and uh, Jenny Baker, Jenny Baker and um, Ryan Blank and Ryan. Um, I'm speaking of blanks, me just blanking out. <laughs> I'm so filled with gratitude that I just you know I I'm blanking. Well, I really enjoyed that bit. project because you yeah. know there's been a lot of those projects and it's really they're dependent on how dedicated the participants are to really following it through and really everyone who was involved in that project really just did a bang up job and you know staying dedicated to the work day in and day out and that's really hard to do on these projects where you know you're not getting paid it's a labor of love Mm -hmm. and you know there's every other reason excuse you could come up with (laughs) not to do the reading and not to show up for your homework and you guys all did it for like how long did that go on like five months uh it was three months so we did three i think months? we did 15 posts each which is a fair bit of writing so it's kind yeah. of a like it's kind of a fun portfolio to have now and, and go back through and be like oh yeah i can't even I, I remember writing that post but it feels like it was so long ago that I, I kind of forgot that i wrote it you know um so it's been quite a cool cool project from just like thinking about your own thinking kind of a perspective sort of metacognition um yeah, but but luckily, if you missed Infinite Winter, or if you miss Infinite Winter, and you and you can't wait to revisit that kind of a group read, uh, we actually something came across our desk just this morning called Poor York's Summer, that is going to be an online community read of Infinite Jest this summer, uh, and it's put on by some other fellow Nuxters, uh, our friend Phil Maletic, who is uh, out in Ontario. Uh, he's doing his dissertation on Wallace and the concept of the community read i think and so he is as part of his dissertation research uh putting on a summer read of infinite jest so you can check that out there on twitter at poor york's summer and the website is poorsummer.org so you can follow on follow along there with that so that should be cool we look forward to it any shout outs matt to uh anything else Shout out to everyone who has downloaded our latest episodes. And we've really had a ton of good feedback. We appreciate everyone from for listening and following along. Totally. The response to our show has just been 
way better than I ever could have imagined. And yeah. I, I love all of our listeners who write in totally. and send us email. We love getting email. If you want to email us, our email address is concavityshow at gmail.com. And you can send us whatever you like or ask us questions. We also have, you can follow us on Twitter at Concavity Show. And it's the same handle on Instagram as well. Got it. And Chris, for people who want to get in touch with you and, and see more of your stuff, where can they where can they go for that? So um, I'm starting my own podcast yes. called Sunny and Wise. So I think that'll be up and running in a month or two. Cool. Uh, and the little wisdom academy that I'm starting here in Austin is called the wisdomsmithy.org. Sweet. Very cool. And that, that's where I'm going to try to do things. <laughs> Are you on Twitter? Do you have a Twitter? Uh, I had a Twitter. <laughs> yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll link to it, it on the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, may yeah. have timed out or something. Right. <laughs> well, no, no. We'll link to it on there. Right. We have had multiple Twitter identities. Uh, uh, Chris has got an interesting past in the uh, online space. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I won't go into all the details. Yeah, right. uh, I was going to ask too uh, for our website. Can you give us like uh, a brief reading list for people who want to read more about some of the Buddhist books that you mentioned? I think the the real gold standard Zen Mind Beginner's Mind. All right, we'll link to that one. And that's by uh, Shinryu Suzuki. And then for Wallace, for people that are not interested in this stuff from any religious aspect, mm. there's a fantastic contemporary Buddhist scholar, former monk. Stephen Batchelor. Hmm. It was one of the first books I encountered called Buddhism Without Beliefs. Hmm. And so that, that really strips down all of the extra stuff that people have put on to. No, I have one of his books. It's called, I think it's called Confessions of an Atheist Buddhist. Yeah, Confessions right. of a Buddhist Atheist. Buddhist yeah, Atheist, yeah. Atheist, yeah. And right. he explains why he left the monastery to rejoin the world. So hmm. it's, um, it's fantastic, though. Really, yeah. Really well written. Absolutely. Cool. Um, and I would say the last the last rec I would have is called The Feeling Buddha by David Brazier, uh, which really badass and twists the Four <laughs> Noble Truths oh, yeah. in a way that you, you don't normally hear about. So. Huh, cool. I, I'll definitely have to check that That's out. That's awesome. So this is interesting. We've talked about Brian Moore's book, Catholics, the novel, oh, which, right. which kind of imagines right. uh, a future of Catholicism that is kind of like a mashup with Buddhism in a way, is the way he sort of positions it. So going into next week's guest, it'll, that'll be kind of a... An it's interesting thing to think about, yeah. Maybe I'll oh, reread that uh, in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> I can't wait for that. Yeah, it'll be fun. Cool. Right, well, Chris, Chris, thank you so much for, for coming us. on, man. I had a blast, man. Yeah, you guys are the best. It's been great I really talking to you, man. It. Loved it. A virtual hug to you, David. <laughs> yeah, you too. We're doing video phony right now, too, which we almost <laughs> yeah. never do. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, everybody, for listening. See you next time. Mama Cedar.